one of my favorite days. I was in Washington, D.C. years ago speaking somewhere. I had a free afternoon. I just went to museums by myself and learned learn things, which yeah. for someone else must, must sound like a, you know, a circle of hell. But uh, <laughs> I, I, I really enjoyed that. This is a show about self-discovery. About understanding ourselves. About looking into the mirror to see the good. The bad. And the unknown of who we are. This is about how we relate to God. And everyone else. From Love Thy Neighborhood in Louisville, Kentucky. Welcome. Welcome. Welcome to the Cast. Welcome to the Enneacast. I am Jesse Eubanks. And I'm Sam Stevenson. Every episode, we walk you through the Enneagram, and today we begin our journey through the head triad. We have come to type number five, commonly known as the investigator. Yes, these wise people have been long awaiting for us to get out of the heart triad and in finally to the head triad. So just a reminder, if you've not yet listened to the Type 5 episode from Season 1, we want to encourage you to go back and check it out because we're going to be talking about a bunch of stuff. And if you haven't listened to that, you might get a little bit lost. Uh, We're going to go pretty deep pretty fast. So just a reminder, these folks, investigators, when they are resourceful, they are reflective, they are perceptive, they're good listeners, and they're very witty. And when you guys are non-resourceful, Uh, You can start to become reclusive, overly detached, and afraid of your feelings. So this season, we're asking the question, how can I change? And before we move to the good news, we first need to acknowledge the bad news about ourselves. So here to give you the bad news, as always, Sam Stevenson. Yes, as we know, fives are in the head triad, and those in the head triad struggle with fear. And for the five, fear gives birth to the deadly sin of greed. Okay, so let's talk about the top three particular ways that this deadly sin of greed can manifest itself for type fives. And we're going to call these the three problems. So problem number one, refusing to give because you believe that there is not enough. You know, a lot of people, when they hear this, probably the first thought that they come to is like, oh, giving, you're talking about money. Right. And sure, like money can be one element of that, but really that's secondary. Mm -hmm. Really what we're talking about is we're talking about relational greed. So refusing to give of yourself relationally because you believe that there's not enough of you. And so what happens is that you don't fully show up in relationships or social situations because you don't think that you have the capacity. Yeah. And for the five, this attitude is really just a scarcity mindset. So you're living from a place of I have to hoard because I don't have enough instead of an outward posture of generosity. And so for the five, this looks like You know, they think, I don't have enough internal resources for this. This relationship is asking too much of me. And I may not have enough external resource like time or resources or money. So I just need to withhold and withdraw and and to close inward on myself. So that's problem one. Problem two, detaching from emotions and emotional life. So this could be detaching from your own emotions or it could be failing to show up for your friends and your loved ones and engage with the emotions of the people around you. It's like it's it's almost like a faucet, you know, it's like yeah. I'm going to dial back the emotional faucet, but then it's almost like the faucet rusted out and now they're like, "Oh crud, I can't I can't turn it back on even if I wanted to." So everyone's looking around them like, "Hey, like what's happening? Are you okay?" And you're, you know, when the five hears that, they're going inward into your mind of like, "Yes, practically logically these things are happening and so therefore this is the truth." When instead people are probably trying to engage with you on a soul, you know, kind of an emotional level. Right. And emotions, you know, they end up feeling like counterproductive right. to being competent. 
And so five like a waste of time. Yeah. Yeah. Fives build this like incredible, robust mental world. And sometimes like that mental world is actually, you know, so complex and so wonderful that fives can actually give all their energy just to that mental landscape. Mm -hmm. Um, And they just they just come to believe that emotions are really just kind of a wasteful use of their energy. Okay, so that was problem two. Jesse, what's problem three? Okay, so problem number three is distancing yourself from others by seeking safety and control through excessive limits. So this means that they might create excessive boundaries such as I don't socialize or I don't ask for help or I don't call people back. Like that's just not something that I do. But it could also mean that they might be controlling by becoming inflexible. So they might set their own agenda and then expect others to conform to their agenda while at the same time they will never flex to other people's agendas. So people and their friends, their their loved ones have somehow become a threat to their independence or their competency or their schedule, their life, instead of seeing them as a gift and experiencing grace and helping us flourish. So fives, whether it's through this excessive boundary making or being controlling or being afraid when other people request things from you, this end result's always the same. You're tempted to isolate, withdraw, and withhold, even from those closest to you. Okay, so that is the bad news. So let's turn a corner. Let's talk about the good news. Yes. So the good news is this. Fives, you guys are in the head triad. You struggle with the issue of fear. And what is the remedy for fear? It is God's presence. Mm. So the only way for fives to really transform is to experience God's presence. Uh, As they experience God's presence, they can begin to believe that God has not abandoned them, that God has made them capable and yet still dependent on him, and that God has made a world of abundance where their needs will be met. So a five really has to get to a place where they receive the fulfilling, satisfying presence of God because God's presence is the only thing that can truly heal their fear. And if a five can really believe that God is always with them in abundance, then their fear will heal and then they can move from a posture of greed to generosity. It reminds me of the verse in Proverbs chapter 11, uh, verses 24 and 25 says, one gives freely yet grows all the richer and another withholds what he should give and only suffers want. Whoever brings blessings shall be enriched and one who waters will himself be watered. So let's explore what living a life of generosity looks like for type fives. So now we're going to take those three primary ways that the deadly sin manifests itself for this type. And now we're going to explore specific ways that God invites us out of our false self and into our true self in Christ. So now we're going to look at each problem and then offer solutions for that problem. Just to note, we've adapted a large portion of our teaching from Beatrice Chestnut's The Complete Enneagram, but we've infused it with Christian theology. And we're probably going to give you way more tips than you could ever memorize, even though you guys are fives and you're super geniuses. He's like, like, try again. Yeah. Uh, this is amateur hour. Yeah, just just pick like one or two things to focus on. Don't be surprised if it feels a little overwhelming at first. Just come back and listen to this later. Okay, so... Sam? Yeah, so just a reminder, problem number one was refusing to give because you believe there's not enough. And so the first solution for this problem is to just challenge the belief that there won't be enough. So fives, there's probably a script running in your head saying, I don't have enough of that, or I can't do that right now. And it's just kind of the end of the sentence. Just challenge that belief. We live in a world of abundance. Remember, just challenge your belief and challenge that mindset of of always thinking, oh, I can't do that or I'm not doing that or I'm, I'm out of that for today. Yeah. You know, Matthew 6 tells us, uh, don't worry, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink? What shall we wear? For the pagans run after these things and your heavenly father knows that you need them. Mm-hmm. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well. That's a reminder. God is generous. Okay. The second solution is 
Remember, scarcity doesn't lead to abundance, but only more scarcity. I mean, think about it. How many times have you set a resource goal only to meet it and then decide that it wasn't enough? So how much time alone is satisfying? How much money and savings? It's just really easy to go like, oh, I'll feel better once I get to this point. And then we get that money. We Mm -hmm. get that time alone. We Mm -hmm. get the books that we need. And then we still go, wait, I'm still not satisfied. Those thoughts, they're not they're just going to entrap you into more scarcity mindset thinking. They'll never lead to generosity because you're not operating from a place of contentment and of a place of abundance. You're saying, I won't be satisfied until I get this thing and insert whatever that might be here. So finally, the third solution is find ways to be filled that are outside of yourself. So, you know, for some types, we tell them they need to slow down. They need more time alone. This isn't the remedy for you guys. It's yeah, five, actually five to, don't need a whole lot more time to themselves. No, it's to get out of yourself, to get out of your head, to get out of your room, wherever you like to retreat. So a good question for fives is how can I fill my life with engagement that is outside of my mind and outside of solitude? And I think engagement means a couple of different things. So I do think it has a social component. So it can mean like I'm going to go and I'm going to interact with somebody. So maybe going to a meal with a friend or volunteering to help other people in need. I also think this, though, I also think part of that engagement is about getting into your body. You know, we've talked about it before that fives at times can go kind of blank uh, in terms of their facial expressions. They don't offer a lot. And I know it's because they're thinking through things, but it's also a symptom of being out of touch with their body. So um, so exercise becomes really important. It really helps the five get in their body and out of their minds. So that was solutions for problem one. Let's talk about problem two. Okay, so problem number two is detaching from emotions and emotional life. So the first solution is notice when you are choosing to detach. Take notice of the moments and scenarios where you can feel your emotions or the emotions of others, but you're resisting them. Um, You can tell that something is going on that feels like it's going to ask too much of you, and so you begin pulling back and pulling away. Are there certain scenarios, situations that make you more ready to detach than others? What do you think is behind that? What do you think is going on? Mm, That's good. Okay. Second solution is practice emoting. So Beatrice Trescent says to make efforts to feel more emotions more often. And so for the five, it really is an effort. You know, a lot of times other, other types may feel the thing first and then try to go back and try to understand why it's happening later. But for the five, your, your primary mode is just to think about it. So now actually move downward and look at your body and see what am I actually feeling about this thing? Yeah, fives, you guys have really robust minds. You're, you're capable of very complex thinking. What we want to invite you towards is expanding your understanding of your own emotions. And part of the way that you could do that is actually by going online and Googling emotion guide and the name Dr. Philip R. Shaver. And there's actually this really wonderful emotions guide. And the idea is beginning to label emotionally label the experiences that you're having. Mm -hmm. So you're not just using like basic words like I feel happy, but you're you're using like secondary and tertiary words like you're like building and building your emotional language. Yeah. To to more nuance your understanding of things. Yeah. And then, you know, I think the other thing that comes to mind for me on this as well is um, we talked a little bit about this in the season one episode uh, with the fives, but work on mirroring those that are around you. Mimic facial expressions and mannerisms of those that are close to you. What do you notice as you do those Mm -hmm. things? Okay, so finally, the third solution, learn to see the positive side of having emotions. As much as we want to believe that we are all cognition and volition, we are not. You are driven by your deep emotional feelings, whether you recognize it or not. In fact, even the reluctancy 
to engage emotions is driven by a deep emotion. Yeah. You know, it's driven by the deep emotional we experience were f- of fear. But far before we were cognitive creatures, we were emotional creatures. We cried. We laughed way before we spoke and had, you know, cognitive thoughts that we were able to articulate as children. Yeah. Your desires, your longings, your hopes, your fears, your joys, like they motivate you and they drive you. And you're made in the image of God, created to experience the fullness of life. Uh, when we look at Jesus, Jesus was not just a stoic. Like, he experienced joy and celebration and laughter, and he was moved by those close to him. You get a picture when you look in the scriptures of an emotional man, not not just, you know, a stoic who... Who had intellectual conversations all yeah, the time. Yeah, it was not just, yeah. I know a lot of people with great theology mm-hmm. that are miserable to be around. <laughs> Like, and just miserable themselves if you ask them long enough. Yeah. I think it's just important that folks don't have a negative view of emotions. And I think that we have sadly cultivated a culture, particularly in higher education, white collar, theological, academic circles, where emotions are seen as less than or as concerning or as what you do and what you believe are all that matter, not how you feel. And what we are saying is we're saying what you do and often what you believe are actually driven by what you feel. So you need to pay attention to that and value it. There's an invitation in that. Like the Lord has invited you to live a full life. And part of that is an emotional life. Okay, so that was problem number two. Let's move on to problem number three. Okay, so problem three is distancing yourself from others by seeking safety and control through limits. So the first solution for this problem is to recognize that believing nothing is wrong only fuels the fire. Part of a way that a five operates is by flipping the script and trying to force control of an emotional situation by just claiming that everything's fine and that there are no problems and shifting blame onto the other parties as deeming them as overly emotional or too needy or too demanding on them. And so yeah, fives can get stuck into the kind of like live and let live mentality. Like hmm. you leave me be. And that's how you're loving me. And I'll leave you be. And that's how I'm loving you. And that but really, that's that's a form of control because we're not designed as creatures to be like that. God made us to need each other and to exchange. And and so when a five gets into a space where they just go, everything is fine, even though you can look at the relationships in their life and you can tell like the relationships are suffering. They are deficient from what they need to be. But the five is saying everything's fine. That is a version of control. Yeah. And so it's really important that a five has to catch themselves when you begin to believe nothing is wrong. There's a decent chance that uh, that you're actually making the situation worse. So go to those people in your life and say, hey, are we really doing OK? Do you feel like I'm OK? What's your perspective on this thing that we're going through? Like. Mm-hmm. Double check with the people around you because your temptation will be to fall asleep by believing everything's okay when in reality it may not be. Okay, the second solution is reflect on what you are really afraid of. Fives, pay attention to your fear. Pay attention to when you feel useless, when you feel helpless, when you feel incapable. Pay attention to how it motivates you to withdraw and distance yourself from others. Use your gift of reflection on yourself. Yeah, fives. Think, you know, ask yourself, like, what would happen if you didn't have these strong boundaries in place? Like, you know, just consider what would happen if you let those boundaries and those walls down. Finally, the third solution is do something instead of always thinking about something. So this is going to be challenging, guys. I know, but thinking about life and experiencing and doing life are not the same thing. It's not just the thought that counts. 
It's the action that counts. Yeah. Uh, yeah, exactly. Anybody that's married, you know, knows if you get home and you're like, I thought about doing this wonderful romantic thing for you. Like you get no points. That almost hurts worse That's to the fact that you worse. didn't do it. Right. You know, it's like, oh, I thought about it, but whatever the second half of that sentence is, like, I thought about it, but like whatever that is, like, that's just going to make you sound like a jerk. <laughs> like, but something came up. Oh, so they're more important than me. You know, like, it's just not going to go well. Um, anyway, Richard Rohr says, remember, some knowledge comes not from thinking, but from real world experience. So fives. Like, do you have any hobbies? Find something, preferably something that involves other people. You know, Modern Enneagram suggests uh, start an idea or a project and don't do any prior research or info gathering before you start. Like, just start it. And, you know, what do you notice as you act without overthinking? Remember, fives, faith as action. Not just faith as theology, but faith as experiencing God, faith as following God, faith as life engagement. So these have been our suggestions for how you can step into the transformative virtue of generosity. When we come back, we'll be talking with author and speaker Sky Jatani. Stay with us. So I think a lot of times people think that maybe all this community talk is just us like posturing, you know, like this is all yeah. just like, oh, we just like to talk about this stuff, but we don't actually put it into practice. Yeah, community is a really good idea, guys. Go out and find it. But we've actually not really implemented that here on our end. But like, that's not the case at all. You no. know. OK, so check out this clip. This is from Alex Dye. He's a uh, intervarsity minister in Knoxville, Tennessee, and he actually served with Love That Neighborhood previously. Yeah, day one, we were told it is impossible to feel loved without feeling known. And we were basically asked to share our life stories with a bunch of strangers, the other people in the program. And I shared things in that time that I thought I was never going to share with anyone. So if you want to be a part of this experience, head over to lovethatneighborhood.org and apply. You'd actually hear directly from Sam, uh, Sam Stevenson. You'd <laughs> Guys, hear directly from her. I will send you a personal email if you apply. So, yeah, we're always taking applications for the summer terms, and we also have two year-long opportunities. One starts in September and one starts in January. We'd love to have you come join us. So go online, lovethatneighborhood.org slash apply. Welcome back to the Enneacast. I'm Jesse Eubanks. And I'm Sam Stevenson. Our guest today is Sky Jatani. Sky is an award-winning author, speaker, consultant, and ordained pastor. He also serves as the co-host of the Holy Post podcast, a weekly show that blends cultural and theological insights with comical conversation. For over a decade, Sky served in numerous editorial and executive roles at Christianity Today. He's also the author of With, Reimagining the Way You Relate to God, and What's Wrong with Religion, Nine Things No One Told You About Faith. And he is a five on the Enneagram. What's up, Sky? Well, thanks for having me on. Yeah, yeah glad thanks, to have you here. Thanks for glad being to here. have you here. So, like, out of all the things that fives are really good at, like, what resourceful traits of the five, Sky, do you enjoy? Uh, I, I've always been a really curious person, and I've always loved learning. So, uh, for me, that's that's a I, I just enjoy that endlessly. I could read books and learn about things, and talk to people, and discover more about the world, and travel, and go to museums. One of my favorite days, I was in Washington D.C. years ago, speaking somewhere. And I had a free afternoon. And I just went to museums by myself and learned. <laughs> 
learn things, which yeah. for someone else must, must sound like a, you know, the circle of hell, but uh, <laughs> I, I, I really enjoyed that. So, and I enjoy meeting people who have that quality as I've gotten around the country and worked in journalism a little bit at Christianity Today and meet different church leaders and pastors. The ones that I resonated with the most were the ones who were equally curious and not just about the things I was curious about, but pastors who were genuinely interested and curious in the people in their church, wanting to discover more about who they are and how to care for them and how to shepherd them. So yeah, for me, that's the quality that I enjoy the most. Yeah, yeah, that's that's good. So as you know, and as our listeners will know, um, this season of the Enneacast is all about transformation and how we can be transformed and changed. So uh, the struggle for the five is greed. And so what's your experience of it? How do you notice uh, greed? Uh, where do you think that comes from? Yeah, uh, it, it's definitely rooted in a fear of scarcity. And not just as it relates to material resources, but everything. Em- emotional scarcity, time scarcity. Gosh, the greatest scarcity of all is life itself, the fear of death. So the idea, Thomas Aquinas had this wonderful illustration of what fear does to our souls. He said, we become like a medieval city under siege where everyone runs behind the city walls and hoards their resources and and hunkers down trying to outlast the attacking army. So it's a contracting posture of the soul. It makes us small and inwardly focused. It's a byproduct, frankly, of, of exploring the world and discovering the way it works you're going to quickly discover that it is a dangerous and threatening world. And fives may grasp that better than some other personalities that are in denial of that fact. And as a result, logic, this just leads us to goodness gracious, in a, in a threatening, dangerous world, we'd be stupid to not hoard our resources and protect ourselves and guard our emotions and, and hunker down. How do you know the difference between like, when do you cross over from cautiousness and evaluation into greed? Like for you, like when is the line crossed from, okay, I'm, I'm being wise and thoughtful and diligent. And now like, no, 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 now I'm, I'm doing something that's sinful. Yeah. I think the easiest way to answer that is when, when the decision is rooted more in self-preservation than, than caring or loving for the people around me. Yeah. There can be a prudence and a wisdom to say, no, you know, I'm, I'm not going to go into thousands of dollars in debt in order to help this person because that would not be good for them or for me. But there's another thing to say, I'm not going to help this person with my time or money or energy because I just don't want to feel vulnerable. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a very helpful distinction. So, um, so Sky, we talked about problem number one is refusing to give because you believe that there's just not enough. Are there places in your life where you've really seen this show up in very tangible ways? Yes, and it's and honestly, I still struggle with it a little bit. And it's not it's not in the area of financial giving as much as it is in time. Time is a far more limited resource. I remember years ago when I was on staff at, at our church as a pastor on staff at our church, I just dreaded going to meetings because I felt like most of what these meetings were convened to accomplish were a waste of time. And my my frustration would come out into the point. I have a cup sitting right in front of me that an elder gave to me probably fifteen years ago. And the mug says in big letters, meetings. And then next to it, because none of us is as dumb as all of us. <laughs> and, and, and I lost my temper one time at a meeting at church because I just understood what a complete and utter waste of time this was, not just for me, but for everyone else. So I, I still struggle with that wastefulness of this is a bad use of time and energy because I don't need to be in. I remember sitting in a meeting once where 
for half an hour, they were debating whether or not our annual church meeting should be a dinner or just a dessert wow. for <laughs> half an hour. Yeah. For half an hour. And, and I think that's a, that's a, that's a relevant question that certain people should be asking. I am of no use in that conversation <laughs> right. whatsoever. Right. Yeah. So part of my frustration in giving away my time is I want to know, is it really necessary? And, and I think I've overreacted to that at times where I will reflexively say no until you can convince me that I really need to be a part of something or that you need me to be a part of something. And that callousness, I sometimes really need to put in check. And I need people around me to say, hey, slow down. <laughs> you, know, you, need to, you need to be a little bit more generous with your time here and, and let it go. You know, we talked a little bit about some of the proposed solutions for that problem. You know, were there any of those solutions jump out at you or resonate with you? Yeah, the, um, the first one jumps out right away. I mean, the, the truth about scarcity or the falsehood of scarcity, the truth of abundance is critical. I mean, I, I, one of my books, I wrote an entire chapter on this. And studying from Genesis all the way through to Revelation, the role of abundance throughout the narrative of, of Scripture is super, super important. And wherever God's presence appears, think about him leading the Israelites in the wilderness out of Egypt toward the promised land. You know, everywhere his presence arrives, abundance comes with it. Jesus does this in his abundance miracles, the, fe the feedings and the wine and things like that in the Gospels. And this is abused and perverted by prosperity gospel preachers who want to extrapolate that out to the American dream kind of abundance. But that's been really transformative for me of truly understanding that an awful lot of our fears are rooted in this falsehood of scarcity. So you just talked about, you know, that the presence of God shows up and wherever the presence of God is, that abundance follows him. Is that part of your motivation for your book with? Yeah. And, and really with, even though I've written seven books in one form or another, they all tackle the same the same core dilemma in, in the way I would diagnose the human condition in the world is that the core human dilemma is fear. And in our fear, in our desire to control, it leads us into really destructive patterns of interacting with God, interacting with one another, interacting with the world. And all of our attempts at control are really illusions. And so even the fear of scarcity our response is, well, how do I get more? How do I have control? How do I maintain my resources? And the only thing that really liberates us from that cycle is a clear vision of God that leads us to the really counterintuitive belief that we are indeed perfectly safe. That's good. Okay, so problem two that we talked about is uh, that fives can detach from emotions and your emotional life. So yeah, talk to me a little bit about that. How do you engage with your emotions? So I'll tell you a story about when I probably learned this lesson best. I was, I just graduated from college. I had moved back in with my parents and started seminary. I started graduate school, which was at the time, I think six hours a day of intensive language study of Greek and Hebrew. And wow. it was just, it was murder. And, and moving back home with my parents, I don't know if you guys have ever experienced this after being independent, moving back home with your parents. That is, is, is painful. It is very painful. <laughs> I had just gotten engaged and we were in the midst of planning a wedding and that is its own level of stress. And on top of that, my parents' marriage at the time was not very stable. So there was just an enormous amount of stress in my life. And I started getting severe chest pains and heart palpitations. I'm 22 years old and my heart was literally stopping and skipping beats and it was super unsettling. Eventually, I end up at the cardiologist's office running on the treadmill with, you know, these leads all over my chest, wondering if I'm going to drop dead. And finally, the cardiologist sits down with me and he says, 
are you under any stress right now? And, and, my, and my honest answer to him was no. Wow. I, I, I said, no, I, I don't feel any stress. And he said, well, tell me what's going on in your life. And I laid out for him all the stuff I just told you. And, and he started laughing. Um, he said, that's your problem, Sky. I said, what? He said, you're under an enormous amount of stress. You just won't admit it. Mm. And because you won't admit it, because you won't let it out, it's coming out psychosomatically. It's coming out through heart palpitations. Other people get ulcers or they get migraine headaches or, you know, that's what our bodies do when they're under stress. And you're just not admitting it. You're not uh, open to the fact that you're under all this stress and you're burying it and it's coming out sideways. And so I have this sort of biological barometer that tells me when I'm not handling my emotions well. And so I'm grateful that that's become less and less frequent because I've become more aware of my stress and my emotions and how do I expose them and release them and not in a way that's destructive to the people around me most of the time, although that has happened, um, but in a way that is just honest and, and start just be admitting the truth. Yeah. Um, okay. So Sky, problem number three is distancing yourself from others by seeking safety and control through limits. Does that, does that resonate with you at all? Yeah, this is one I, I, um, this is one that's very easily, uh, spun into a positive quality. Okay. 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 I want to hear this. I think for a lot of my adult life, having been in the ministry world where boundaries are so rare, I remember when I was a seminary student, my wife and I were newlyweds and she went to a, a gathering of other spouses, particularly wives of seminary students. And she came back and I asked her how it went. And she's like, I can't go back to that thing. <laughs> I, said, I said, why not? And she said, because it was all these wives just trashing their husbands all day long about how all they, all they do is study and, and ministry and they have no time for their wives. And I said, well, what did you say to them? And she said, I told them the truth. I never see you study. <laughs> and, and because even then I had this mindset, my wife was working full time and I was in seminary full time. And my attitude was when she comes home from work, I need to be done with studying. So I'm going to work and have a boundary. And if I can't do that with my own wife as a newlywed, then something's wrong. So from the get go, I was always okay with these boundaries amidst a community of people that celebrated not having boundaries. Now, yeah, it can't be taken too far. And Thankfully, I'm married to somebody who pushes me out of those boundaries all the time and forces me into environments and relationships and doing things that I wouldn't choose to do on my own. So that I, she's a very good check on me. To, I could I could play the boundaries card whenever I wanted to get out of something and yeah. she will call my bluff. Yeah, yeah. good. That's yeah. good. Um, so we're kind of getting at the idea of being receptive and uh, moving kind of out of a scarcity complex. You said it really well earlier when you said that like it's a contracting nature of the soul to move inward on itself. So what does that look like to to move outward, to move forward rather than withdraw? Yeah, um, for me, uh, having been a relatively fearful kid, and, and even fearful young adult, as I got to my teen years and, and early 20s, I knew this about myself. And I knew that the best antidote was to figure out what I'm afraid of, and then be forced to go do it. And part of what allowed me to do that, and this is where a five, I think, has some resources inherent to their personality that can help them is, even though I might want to retract inward and be afraid, I have this outward push of curiosity. And that motivates me to like, for example, when I was a seminary student, you know, I'm learning various things about pastoral ministry. And I knew that probably my biggest 
shortcoming was in counseling and pastoral care, especially people that are facing really difficult traumatic situations because they draw on tons of your resources and energy and time. And I didn't want to engage that. So I chose to be a hospital chaplain for a semester that would force me into that environment every single day. And it was, it was hard. It was really hard, but I'm grateful I did it and learned a lot in the process. So uh, again, there's that momentum when you face these things you don't want to do and you force yourself to do them, you gain the courage and the capacity to do it more. Yeah. Well, I think part of what you're getting at too, Sky, is like, we're talking a lot about, you know, the invitation, the transformative virtue is generosity. You know, that's the antidote to greed. Um, we're getting at generosity of presence, you know, like that you're, you're showing up with yourself. So it's showing up for friends, it's showing up for your wife, your kids. And that's, that's like the big thing is like giving your presence away to other people. Well, when we come back, we will be playing What's Your Number with Sky Jatani. Stay with us. In today's episode of the Enneacast, we're exploring type number five, the investigator. And specifically, we're talking with Sky Jatani. Well, this is actually not the first time that we've talked with Sky. We actually interviewed Sky along with a whole bunch of other people for our other podcast, the Love Thy Neighborhood podcast. And specifically for episode number 20, where the gospel meets social justice. I was struggling to figure out you know, who would really have any dif- disagreements with this. I'm fearful that these right and good desires get turned into bad pathways. We're almost always talking about race. And so we've created this boogeyman. So do I believe in social justice? If you want to hear how Christians are wrestling with this really important topic of social justice, make sure to subscribe to the Love That Neighborhood podcast. Just search for Love That Neighborhood in whatever podcast app that you're listening to this podcast in. Or head over to lovethatneighborhood.org slash LTN podcast. Hey, welcome back to the IndiaCast. I'm Jesse Eubanks. I'm Sam Stevenson. And now it's time for What's Your Number? Our game today is called What's Your Number? This is based off a real game by the company Player10. You can find What's Your Number by going to player10.com. You can also buy it on Amazon. So here's how you play. Uh, Sky, I'm going to read you a card, and then you're going to rank what is on that card from 1 to 10. So 1 meaning that you absolutely despise it, 10 meaning that you love it. But keep the number to yourself. Sam and I are each going to try to guess what we think you've ranked this thing. Uh, Sam and I cannot pick the same number. After we've each taken a guess... You're then going to reveal what number you chose, and whoever guessed the closest gets a point. Best out of five wins. You ready? All right, let's do it. Okay. Okay. Sam, are you ready to be destroyed? No, I will win this game. Okay, here we go. Sky, not tipping if you didn't like the service. Oh, man. Not tipping if you didn't like the service. So, one, does he hate it when people do that? Or 10, he loves it. He thinks that is a that is a reasonable, great thing. Bad service, no tip. I think the rational side of Sky is very much like, you performed at this level, I will reward you for this level. But Sky's a Christian, he's a pastor, he does all, he has a, I don't know where restaurants he goes to or how well known he is, but he has a reputation. 
So I feel like he has to tip even if it's not a great service, but I think the like I think he has to fight tooth and nail. I'm so gonna Sam, say what's your number? Four. Four. Um I think you are onto something. I think there's an internal struggle. I yeah. think that uh people should only get tipped for good service, but sometimes there's room just for mercy. Mm. So what did you say? You said, I said what, four. You said four. I'm gonna say six. Okay. I'm gonna say six. So Sky, what's your number? Yeah, this one's a little complicated. I actually, I said two. Oh, Sam (laughs) took it. Okay, so so explain. Uh, Well, I mean, the way I think about it, a tip is, it's part of just the expense. It's it's their earnings. It's their job. I'm not going to punish somebody with a bad tip because I don't even see it as a tip much anymore. I've been on the receiving end of tips. I get it. It's it's what they rely on for their income. So if I really receive bad service at a restaurant, I'm not going to tip probably less than 18%. What I will do though, is I'll go talk to a manager and I will say, listen, out of concern for you and the well-being of your establishment, you need to know that your people suck, you know, and, this, <laughs> and, and, and you need to do something about it. Yeah. But I, I won't hit them financially. On the flip side, I love over tipping for really good service. Yeah. I just, that's good. I, that, I just think it's great when you can say to somebody, not only did you do your job adequately, like you blew me away and I want you to know that I love doing that. Uh, that's cool. Um, yeah. Yeah. Those, those are, that's, that's good advice. That's okay. Wisdom. Okay. Sky next one. Political bumper stickers. I'm going to say like one, <laughs> like does not like them. Doesn't like them. Okay. I think he has, a fascination with them. <laughs> I think that uh, I think there's candidates that, that Sky really does like and enjoy and appreciate. But I also think that there's a part of him that's like morbidly curious about the type of people who about like well, especially like a bad political themselves. bumper sticker, yeah. like or like what is the algorithm of this bumper sticker plus this one plus this one? Like, what's it telling me about oh, yeah. that person? So I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go five because I think it just sort of evokes curiosity. Uh, Sky, what's your number? I my number's five. Oh, Boom. what really? Yeah, I I don't have any political bumper stickers, and I never would. And and I probably quietly and secretly judge everybody who does, but uh, I got to admit when I'm behind a car and there are numerous bumper stickers, I am plotting to figure out the worldview that makes them all consistent with each yes. other. Wow. Yes. Um, wow. But the other thing is, I, most political bumper stickers I find completely banal and just right useless. Right. I will give points for clever, humorous bumper stickers. Yeah, yeah. but these like, are political. I just ones. saw one. Yeah. I just saw one the other day that said. Any functional adult, twenty twenty. Yeah, that's brilliant. Right, that's so right. good. That, that, I, I appreciate that. I mean, yes. I would never again put it on my yeah, car, absolutely. but I think it's yeah, like, I you get you get one. points for being funny and entertaining me in my community. <laughs> right. So, Sam, you got one. I got one. So we're tied. So we're tied. Here oh, we go. It's getting real. <laughs> okay, here we go. Last one, okay. Sky. Small talk. Oh no. What do you think, oh, no. Sam? This is just, I just like my mind imploded because Fives typically hate small talk, but he hosts, he hosts a podcast. So he's a talkative guy. He's in ministry. So he's got to do it. But in general, I do wonder if he ever, like, I don't think that that's his preferred talk style is shooting the breeze, talking about the weather. I'm going to say three. Okay. You're going three. I am going to go with two. Okay. I think occasionally if it's another person that he enjoys and likes, that's fine. They'll do small talk. But I think that he prefers topics and yes. substance. 
like not you nonsense. know nonsense yeah. yeah okay okay sky what's your number my number is two. Oh, Boom! No. Yeah, you nailed it. I uh, and I've been writing them down as you've asked me, so I can't change my answer. That's so right. It was two. Uh, exactly what you said. I mean, I, I my wife sometimes we're at a social gathering and she knows I hate small talk, and she will say to me, "Look, you just need to do a better job of faking it. Yeah, and and, and pretend that you're interested in what everyone's talking about." Um, so I will I will just sit there and nurse my drink or or you know pick up my food and 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 engage lightly until something of interest actually starts moving in the conversation then i perk up and engage but yeah i just don't have the the patience for it i mean it goes back to that thing about meetings none of us is as dumb as all of us like (laughs) if if we're gonna sit here in one another's presence and talk let's make it worthwhile i agree and i also agree that i won (laughs) so sam it's been a pleasure Okay, uh, so we're going to end each episode this season by asking our guests questions from our listeners. So let's do that now. Um, Okay, so this question comes from Medin Hay, so M-E-D-E-N-N-E-H-Y. They ask, I'm a five. How can fives learn to be more engaged and present in the here and now? Um, That's a good question. My initial response is probably the same way everyone else needs to learn to be present here and now. And if we're not, if we don't find the person we're with or the task we're engaged in to be that stimulating or interesting, we will immediately go to the thing that is more interesting or more engaging. And for most of us today, that's our smartphone. So an important discipline for me is to not have my smartphone on me all the time or to not have it available, which forces me to engage with this person across from me who I find incredibly boring and uninteresting. Uh, So it kind of takes away the the temptation to distract yourself with some deeper thing. Now, what it doesn't do or help us with is, and I think this came out in some of what you guys talked about earlier, fives can have really complicated and interesting internal imaginations. And so it doesn't prevent us from withdrawing into our own minds, but at least it prevents us from withdrawing into some other external object of interest. Yeah. Uh, next question. <laughs> this one's funny to me. Uh, who's, this from, from, who's it from? Uh, Roseanne M. Green. She asks, how do you know if your teenage daughter is fiving or being a teenage girl? And and I think that she's getting at this withdrawn moodiness, uh, privacy thing. That's a funny question. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I have a teenage daughter. Um, I also have a friend who's a, a psychiatrist, and I remember asking him once years ago, before my daughter was a teenager, about, and this is getting kind of technical, but how do you diagnose bipolar disorder in yeah. teenage girls? Mm-hmm. Right. You can't diagnose bipolar disorder in teenage girls yeah. because they're basically all bipolar. Yeah, right. And so there's certain psychiatric disorders you just don't diagnose teenage girls because they're in that phase of development that is just erratic. And this is the kind of thing that bothers me is when somebody wants to take a complicated human being like a teenage girl and just go, well, is she just being a five? Mm, Like just mm -hmm. pigeonhole them into a, a category rather than allowing an Enneagram to help illuminate the way someone operates. We try to force them into the category of an Enneagram number. So we gotta be careful we don't do that. And we respect the fact that these are artificial, these are nine artificial categories. And People are infinitely more complicated than nine categories, and we need to give hold these things, these tools loosely and use them wisely, but not 
force people into categories that yeah. they don't naturally fit into. Yeah. And there is, I think with this particular example, there is a certain level of privacy and and scarcity or withdrawnness that happens whenever someone is an adolescent. And that might be a pattern that continues well into their adult life, or it might just be something that she's trying to work through. Um, really, personality doesn't get flushed out until early 20s. So she is still kind of just feel, feeling her way out and figuring it out. And this, you know, withdrawing, you know, contorting inward may just be her method now, uh, but it might change. Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah. I echo what Sam said. I think that we need to be very reluctant on typing people, you know, mm-hmm. early in life. And first off, we shouldn't type others. You need to type yourself. Um, yeah. But second, I think that, uh, you know, if she may have a lot of five qualities, mm-hmm. uh, but I don't know that I would. Yeah. Teenage years are tough, man. There's yeah. just a lot cooking. Yeah. Just pray so, for her. Yeah, just give her yeah. space. Just ask. Just like you maybe pray set for a her, schedule. We'll pray for you. <laughs> right. Set a schedule like, okay, give me one day where you're going to be present. You know, just try to be realistic with your expectations um, yeah. in this in the season. So. Um, well, Sky, it's been fun, man. Thank you so much for uh, for joining us and, and chatting with us and letting us into your uh, your interior world. Yeah. We appreciate it. Well, thank you to our guest today, Sky Jatani. You can find Sky's books wherever you buy good books. Also, head over to skyjatani.com to sign up for With God Daily. That's a daily devotional series sent directly to your email to help you move from a life for God to a life with God. And don't forget to subscribe to The Holy Post. It's honestly, it is one of the most consistently listened to podcasts by the Love That Neighborhood team. Yeah, uh, so again, head over to skyjatani.com. That's S-K-Y-E-J-E-T-H-A-N-I.com. Also, thank you to Crosspoint Ministry, who trained Sam and I in the Enneagram. To learn more about Crosspoint or to attend one of their amazing retreats, visit crosspointministry.com. Our show is a production of Love Thy Neighborhood. Love Thy Neighborhood provides social action internships supported by Christian community for young adults ages 18 to 30. Serve for a summer or a year. Grow in your faith and life skills. Learn more at lovethyneighborhood.org. Today's episode was produced by myself, Sam Stevenson, and Rachel Zabo. Engineering and editing by Rachel Zabo. Music for today's episode comes from Murphy DX. I'm Sam Stevenson. And I'm Jesse Eubanks. Remember, the eye can see everything but itself. Find people to journey with you because you were created for community.